I'm Anthony Penn. Welcome to Pen Drop. My guest today is none other than Harry Allen. He is a hip hop activist and media assassin who writes on race, politics, and culture for publications like The Vibe, The Source, The Village Voice. He's been doing this for more than 25 years. As an expert covering hip-hop culture, he has been quoted in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, on National Public Radio, and the BBC. Well known for his association with the seminal group Public Enemy, and for his widely heard cameo on their classic record, Don't Believe the Hype, Harry Allen has also founded the world's first nonprofit organization for hip-hop culture, the Hip-Hop Hall of Fame and Rhythm Culture Center. Let's go to the very beginning. When and how did your relationship with hip-hop start? I was born in New York City uh, in the early 1960s to parents who were uh, Costa Rican of West Indian descent. And they came to the United States in the early 60s and lived in New York. We moved to Brooklyn. But as is often, I think, the goal of uh, many immigrants, they wanted to get to the suburbs. So that's what they did. When I was just around eight years old, we moved out to Long Island. And it was while we were on Long Island that hip-hop, was starting to make its way. This would have been 1972. So I got wind of it out there. Um, I can very distinctly remember um, one of the older boys in the neighborhood, whose name was Canute, um, was telling me about this this new uptown sound. I remember him, you know, asking me. That's what he called it, the uptown sound. And he he, he recited a few lyrics. He said. You know, Mickey Mouse is in the house and Donald Duck don't give up, you know. <laughs> and I was, it was just those, it was just those two lines and I was captivated. <laughs> it was like, this was like great. Um, but, you know, um, when I, and then I should say also that um, uh, around that time we started seeing park jams, you know, with DJs. And I, I can, I can remember, of course, the sound of the, um, the uh, echo chamber DJs would uh, mm. play a record and they would, and or MCs would rap while they were playing and, and they, you know, rhyme and they'd go and stereo, yo, 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 and it would echo. And that was just like, wow, to me, it was just like, it just fit, you know? Um, but I, I would also say that as I often do that, um, I was prepared for hip hop by the fact of being a black American, uh, a descendant of African people. And uh, to my thinking, there were things that uh, preceded hip hop that um, that prepared me and made me ready for it. And I would say the very first thing um, was the centrality of rhythm in our culture. A rhythm is a is a fundament to black culture, and it's a fundament in hip hop. Um, the orality of hip hop was um, is something that one sees echoing all throughout black culture. I see hip hop as a kind of condensation and concentration of these earlier kinds of um, expressions. I'm old enough to remember when on Channel 13, they were advertising this new upcoming show called Sesame Street. And we were all excited <laughs> about this because it looked like a lot of fun. And I remember that they had this, uh, they used to have these, well, I guess they still do. I haven't watched Sesame Street in decades, but they used to have these shorts, these short films that would, emphasize, you know, the letter this or the number that, you know, and give you a little short lesson about it. And there was one called Joe and the June Bug. And you can still find this on YouTube. And it, um, I remember it, I, I remember to this day how this thing went. And it starts, um, once upon a time, a guy named Joe noticed a June bug on his toe, put it in a jar and started to go. But there comes the judge who said, no, no, no. Joe said, why? And started to jump. And it goes on and on and on like this. Now, I later realized <laughs> that this was really a, a form of, of, of patter that that was invented by black people and and established by them, not not only in jazz and in the 40s um, before Sesame Street, 
but as far back at least um, it, as the as the nineteenth century in what was called patent juba, um, a form of orality that was rhymed that involved the speaker pointing out uh, individuals and making fun of them in a kind of like you know familial way, um, what you might call a roast, you know, or freestyling. Mm-hmm. The, the, this was this was a kind of orality that precedes hip hop and rhyming by by at least a century but wound its way into the culture for people who didn't even necessarily know about it so i say it was my relationship to hip hop began as a young person but it was preceded by the things that were built into my culture that's really helpful and and as i was listening to you it kind of begs the question for me what exactly is hip hop well, okay, so that's a great, great question. It's one that um, that I think many people uh, think about. And, and the way I think about it is that as a definition, uh, a, a definition of anything is, is really contextual. And it has to do with your framework and what you're trying to do. So, for example, you could define hip-hop musicologically. And by that, I mean in a manner fit for music or cultural scholars. And this would be a very lengthy and technical definition, not only because one would have to explain rap to people who are specialists, ostensibly, people who have thought about it very deeply and written about it very deeply. You'd have to talk about specific kinds of things that make it part of, of working sound, the panoply of working sound. Not only because you have to explain that, but you'd also have to explain DJing, b-boying, writing, which is what many people, which is what the, the, the original name for what many people call graffiti. Plus, you'd have to explain what connects all these art practices. And as, as many know, hip-hop is commonly held to be four practices, uh, MCing, DJing, b-boying, and writing. If you're a musicologist, you might define hip-hop very technically with a very long definition that has to accommodate for all of these forms and how they connect to each other. I have two definitions that I use, one I use very frequently and one less frequently. So I say that frequently hip hop is rap music and its associated forms. I think this is a compact definition that's accessible to most people, even if you're not a fan of the culture. If you talk to a housewife from Idaho or Minnesota, she probably knows what rap music is. She's probably heard it. And if you talked about breakdancing, DJing, um, or uh, uh, graffiti, she would have a sense of what those things are. She would she might be offended by them or not think the real art or music, but she would at least know what they are. And I feel that that's a simple way to kind of talk about these four forms and their connection. She might even have an idea that these are things that are related. Um, so I, I think that's a quick and easy way. Yeah, thank you for that. It, it raises two connected questions for me. First, why do you think hip-hop took this particular form, right? The cultural expression of Black people is expansive. It has developed over centuries. Why this particular form? And what was it about that time frame that made hip-hop so timely? I I think there are a couple of things that were going on. So I think in terms of why I took this form, you know, it's interesting. I took a a class called Black Music and Musicians with uh, when I was at Delphi with uh, Professor Andre Strobert, um, a percussionist no longer alive, but a a, a very good jazz percussionist of of good reputation. He also taught. I remember him once saying that the scratch often sounded like the shakere, the beaded drum. And then he he made the Mm -hmm. the sound of the drum and they went on the turntable so i remember him saying this so it it really got my attention to the degree that that's true that this speaks to what are often called retentions and i i I guess alluded to this earlier when i spoke about these things that are that come out of africa that are retained by african-americans um despite everything that we've gone through here in this part of the world but I, I would also say that um, that hip hop coalesces around certain social realities. It coalesces in New York City when you have a 
infrastructure that's falling apart and it's kind of left to the people of the city to make what they will of it. There's that famous um, daily news cover that says Ford to city, President Ford dropped dead. And this is talk. This was talking about how the federal government was not going to bail out New York, which was going through immense financial troubles at that time. I would say also that um, hip hop speaks to a kind of accessibility to and familiarity with um, technological tools, especially electronic ones. You have to get to a certain place in the story of electronic tools and 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 how you get them and how you use them before you can do things like put your hand on a turntable or on a record platter. You wouldn't have done that with a gramophone. It's, it's, that was the kind of thing that you would put up, lock up. A lot of artists, a lot of DJs talk about the struggle that they had with their parents to get access to the records. That's often a big part of how uh, DJs talk about their early years. Dad wouldn't let me touch the records, or he told me never to touch those records. But at the same time, what you often find is that the parents of DJs were people who often had a lot of social gatherings at their homes. Their father might have been an aspiring DJ, playing records in the neighborhood. So you're talking about a certain kind of uh, um, collecting, which is taking place at that time. It's only after a certain. It's only after a certain kind of, if you will, commercial and um, uh, distribution processes are are consolidated that someone can become a collector of records. And I would also add that, that interestingly enough, hip-hop is founded by three people, three DJs, Cool Herc, Grandmaster Flash, and Africa Bambata, who were all first-generation or, uh, or immig- first-generation Americans or immigrants, that their parents come from the West Indies, where there are already certain kinds of practices going on with record playing and music that they were able to bring in and develop. And I I would also add that I think hip-hop sounds like the city. It's not the kind of music that you would have heard develop in a countryside or in in a quiet, uh, by a quiet brook, if you will. It sounds, it's punchy and percussive and loud and screeches like the, the five train going uptown. So I think it's imprinted in time, in place, and by people. And that's what makes it sound the way it did. And then, of course, that sound developed as people began to practice and interact with it. Let, let me suggest something, and you respond. You, you, you tell me what you think. It seems to me the music of people of African descent always involves movement. Yes. Right? It involves movement of individual bodies, but it also involves movement of the collective. Uh, And and being mindful of that, I'd want to suggest, and again, I'd like you to react to this, that what you get with hip hop is a certain type of reaction to the Great Migration, the failures of the Great Migration, right? So the Great Migration, after the, after the Civil War, you've got this mass movement of African-Americans that moves into the 20th century, African-Americans moving into southern cities, northern cities, and will begin to move west. With the blues, you get black folks talking about this movement, somewhat suspicious of it, but still allowing for a certain type of hope that it will mean something. And it seems to me the generation that gives us hip hop has experienced the failures of the great migration. And what you get within their music is a kind of signifying of that movement and its unfulfilled promises. I think this is all very plausible. I think that um, there's, a, there's a mentor of mine who says that the one thing the racists can always do to non-white people is, one, move as many of them as they want, and two, kill as many of them as they want. So I think that from the slave ships, at least, that what you have is black people being moved or moved about, landed 
set, if you will, in a certain place and then responding. And the, the, the setting forms a kind of compression and release, if you might say, the compression of the new setting and then the release of how we feel about it. I mean, you know, when um, Dr. Strobert told me in Black Music and Musicians that in African cultures, there were catalogs of music for the expression, for, for, for expressing uh, one's feelings for one's friends, that, that African catalogs of music could be that specific, that we have, a, we have a section here that's just about friends and what they mean to us, like Houdini would later say. That, that tells me that, that these are cultures that navigate musically all kinds of stuff, that music is a way to make sense of reality and to, and to, if you will, consolidate the group around a vision of what is actually happening. So what you've described sounds extremely plausible to me, uh, because when we think about it, all those migrations are, all those migrations are followed by great leaps in terms of musical expression and um, organization. And, and, you know, to kind of add to that, it seems to me that there are ways in which hip hop has been self-conscious in terms of its commitment to articulating the movement of black and brown people, right? So think in terms of the slabs where I am in Houston, Texas, right? Hip hop responds to these cars moving slowly through the third ward, moving slowly through the fifth ward. Or on the West Coast, these cars moving slowly through Compton, moving slowly through Long Beach, right? There are ways in which hip hop in numerous ways conditions itself to this movement. And, and I would argue, adding to that, that one of its most significant cultural impacts, one of its greatest gifts to us is disruption. The yes. use of cultural creativity to disrupt. Yes, uh, I, I would absolutely say that. I, I, as you were making that point about movement, I was thinking about the fact that in hip hop, a longstanding you know, piece of, of uh, lingua franca is, yo, keep it moving. Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. like that, that, which doesn't mean literally move, but it means progress. You know, yeah. like gotta gotta have progress in, in whatever I'm doing or building, and, and because movement is so much a part of style, it's so much a part of black style also. Like how one moves, it, it, which is connected to rhythm again. It, it, these things are all inter, interlocked and, and linked. Absolutely. So, so yes, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that disruption, uh, disruption, I think, is what we memorialize and accentuate through both production, hip-hop production, ultimately, via the sampler and turntable and the use of the scratch. I think that's absolutely right. And when you, when you talk in terms of the turntable and when you talk in terms of of tagging, graffiti, it, it seems to me these are two of the elements that point out the poetic quality of hip-hop. And by poetic, I mean hip-hop destroys language. It destroys traditional ways of communicating in order to free them to tell a different story. And so with the turntable, you have the disruption of its initial intent. Right. You have the yeah. disruption of how you're supposed to play that album and what yes. you're supposed to gather from that album with yes. graffiti and tagging. You have an alteration, a signifying of what art should entail and who gets to create it and how they are named in that process and, and how one views it. Yes. And I, where I, one I, views it. How, yes, exactly. I, 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 um, I, I don't remember who it was who told me about this idea of an African museum being one where you put the objects on the path as you walk to get water. Mm. Um, and it always was interesting to me that, that the trains, the trains reversed the, the interaction with the, with the art in the sense that the art would come to you and pause in front of you and then move along before the next piece literally called pieces would then come along either on the next car or the next train. So yeah, these are, these are, processes of inversion and um, certainly uh, 
of, of, of deconstruction. I, I, w- I wouldn't say it, hip-hop destroys language, but it certainly disrupts it and reformulates it. And that reformulation and disruption is part of the brilliance of it and even part of the, how, one, how one can be marked as a brilliant MC. See, I, I'd want to push the destruction, and by and, and using the language of destruction, I'm describing a positive thing, right? That this language that was used to reify, to misname black people, is now disrupted. is it's it's mangled in such a way that it is not recognizable in terms of its first use. And it and in doing that, it kind of frees us to ask different questions. What is art? Who gets to produce it? How do words get used? How are they created? And it seems to me those are productive elements that we might not have without hip hop. I definitely agree with you in terms of these goals and uh, these 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 cultural products that you've just described. I just think the word destruction means something different to me. I, I mean, there's so many times I think about hip hop and I say, well, at the end, you're still speaking English. Like, unless you've gotten something that's completely unintelligible from English, and I don't, I don't think hip hop is often. I, I think, I think many artists move toward that, but I think that at the very least, it's African English, African American English, which is and and follows and closely aligns itself with those patterns and ways of expression. So I'm, I'm not sure I would say destroy. To me, destroy really means like where you don't leave anything behind that you recognize. Or where you where what you recognize is just recognizable enough for you to go home and say they destroyed it. <laughs> so, but I wouldn't I wouldn't quibble over that. I wouldn't quibble over that definition. Actually, I'm just saying let's, that. Let's stay there uh, for yeah. just a minute before we move on. Sure thing. So, I I think there are ways in which one might be able to say that destru- destruction involves a kind of freeing of language yes. from the traditional rules and regulations that hip hop oh, yes. entails a very different grammar. And this gets pushed even further, it seems to me, if you think in terms of mumble rap, for example. Yes. Yes. I think I think I definitely agree with that. I definitely I definitely see the goal of MCs and some more than others to really reorganize, if you will, the feel of the language. And what that requires in terms of specific techniques varies varies in terms of the way you approach rhyming um where you're from your own vocabulary you know your subject matter so so i definitely agree with that i definitely agree with that i definitely agree that um it's a form of customization that artists are always seeking you you want you want the verbiage to fit you to fit you especially yeah, yeah. and breaking it down to sound right so you get something like uh na 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 Yes, which is very expressive. And it communicates something, right? For folks within the culture, it communicates something. Yes, and, and, and especially if you use it at the right time. That timing is also very important. So, so based on this conversation, we have to assume that there is something intentional in what hip-hop is doing, right? The culture is intentional. And I want to believe that part of that intentionality has to do with morality and ethics, that hip-hop culture is producing and discussing a moral and ethical viewpoint. That is to say, hip-hop produces a certain set of values. Yes. It certainly is at the service of those, I would say. I, I think that those values and that morality dominate. Those, these viewpoints dominate hip-hop. So, so let's, let's drill down a bit. What would you say are some of these values uh, preached, so to speak, within hip-hop culture? Well, I think there are a few of them. There are probably many more than the ones that come to my mind. I think there's at least one primary one and what I call five secondary ones. I would say the first value is the primacy of the self, the centrality of I. I was uh, thinking about this and I noted that even a Kendrick Lamar record from a few years ago is called I, just that pronoun. And I think that that is a very primary value that, uh, I stand 
I see, this is my statement and my viewpoint. Um, I think it's one of the reasons even why you don't see a lot of remakes in hip hop. You don't see a lot of artists remaking other artists' records. Snoop might remake Lottie Dottie because he's a huge fan, you know, but for the most part, the, the, the vocalist is the songwriter, unless they're ghostwritten. Uh, the vocalist is speaking about their viewpoint, their point of view. And the idea that even if something is ghostwritten for you, that this is my own point of view is a far more central value and that I am here making this statement, and I stand by my words, I think, in hip-hop and even in other forms. In European classical music, you're not necessarily expressing any viewpoint. Even if you're singing something legendary, you're you're singing something that's architecturally profound, presumably. But it's not. this doesn't speak for me. It might speak to me, but I'm not talking about myself. Or even in jazz, if I'm singing a song, I'm usually singing something that someone wrote a long time ago, and it's beautiful, and it's a classic, but I'm not necessarily talking about me. I think because, in part because hip-hop is also present, but also because of this this declarative quality it has, that that's a very first primary uh, value, the primacy of the self, the centrality of, of the I that things originate here where I'm standing and we radiate out, so to speak. Okay, so a kind of celebration of personhood. What else? Yes, and personal authenticity and authority. Yes. Then I would say what I call the unlimited fluency of the streets. Now, I um, was... Break it down. I've been thinking about this this idea of the streets, and I wrote to um, Professor Todd Boyd at USC, and I asked Mm -hmm. him, what do we mean when we say the streets? And he wrote back and he said, first, good question, which I appreciated. Then he said, I think of the streets as the intersection of urban adult life, where sex, drugs, and crime merge to create a high-risk environment, one where both transgressive excitement and ultimate ruin define the possibilities. I think that's a pretty good kind of like back-of-the-napkin definition of what we call the streets. And I think the streets are authoritative in hip-hop, that this this space called the streets, where everything is real, where there's, as Professor Boyd said, high risk. And your currency has to do a lot with the degree to which you navigate them and survive them. The streets form kind of like that place where in traditional tales, the young man goes to kill the lion, so to speak. The streets are that area. They're that psychographic kind of space that are the background and are the only unquestionably real space uh, in terms of narrative. As I was listening to you, both in terms of your conversation about the self or personhood and the streets, it seems to me that undergirding this is another moral or ethical value, and that is awareness, right? That within hip-hop culture, there is a celebration of and a call to awareness of our circumstances. Absolutely. That could be an, another another one. I don't know if I, if I would build it into the street or extrapolate it on, by itself, but, you know, there's that turn, caught slipping, like that's like mm-hmm. not good. <laughs> it's not good to not be aware. You know, I was watching a, um, I was watching an interview. Um, Dasis and Mara were interviewing Denzel Washington. I was watching this on YouTube, and Denzel made the point that when you grow up in the city, he grew up in Mount Vernon, which is right near the Bronx, that you have this thing where you learn to always be looking up ahead of you to see what's about to happen, what's moving or or bubbling up right, you know, several yards up in front of you. You you, you put your viewpoint there. So I think that that thing of awareness, absolutely, like, you know, where are you? What's going on behind me? You know, what's going on to either side of me is a big facet of certainly urban life. And certainly when urban life is dangerous or tentative, even more so. I think that's absolutely right. And I would tag on to this 
this commitment to awareness, the ethical importance of awareness, I would tag onto that another consideration, and mm. that is a commitment to raw and rugged truth. Yes. A description of life as it is, period. Yes, veracity. Like, if I'm making this up, I'm making it up, and we know that. But to make it up and to be found out to... So, for example, several years ago, um, the rapper Rick Ross was found to have been not a mogul, but a security guard in prison. And the fact that this did not end his career <laughs> at the time was kind of marked by a lot of older heads as the proof of of hip-hop having become very indulgent and commercial. Like, the idea was that in the past, if you had found that out and he had hid that, like, that would be the end of all... No one would buy to any of his boss player rhymes ever again. I mean, and I think this is an ongoing struggle because a lot of people say things like, you know, if this had happened before, they'd have found out that this artist didn't write their own rhymes... That would have been the end of them. But the fact that hip-hop has become so commercially viable puts a lot of these ethics in question, as ethics always come into question when you s sit down a case full of money in front of somebody. It doesn't even matter what the conversation is. <laughs> it doesn't matter what the conversation is. You get a suitcase, mm -hmm. a Halliburton suitcase full of $100 bills and open it up in front of somebody. That con conversation verges. It changes direction. And so... Hip-hop is affected by all of this as well. Think in terms of the ghetto boys mind playing tricks on me, yes. for example. Yes. Right? I mean, this is storytelling that is graphic, on some level disturbing, yeah. but it's meant to provide certain insights. Yes. Right? It teaches both positive and negative lessons that have everything to do with how we ought to think about what's important in terms of relationships yes. and how we ought to behave in the world. Yes, yes, absolutely that. It's cautionary. Even from the, mm -hmm. even from the title, Mind Playing Tricks on Me, it, 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 I mean, that raises a question, you know, like, like yeah. and, it, and it sets you up for what comes, it's, it's, it's like a great opener you could almost see it like if it were a movie on the title card and hear the organ blasting like before we see whatever it is we're going to see. Um, it sets you up for a very, a very, um, how would I say it? It's an unnerving set of stories. It's three of them, you know, by the three vocalists, um, uh, Willie D, Scarface, and, and Bushwick Bill, and uh, God rest his soul. And... Um, it's troubling, and it's it's also beautifully detailed and simply told. So it shows great craft as well, which is you know always a mark of the yeah. best narratives. Yeah. And and sometimes it's more explicit than in other cases, right? Yes. It seems to me there is also something about hip hop culture, and I'm thinking particularly in terms of rap, that has the quality of a kind of epistle. Right. A letter to a community. Yeah. So I'm thinking in terms of Scarface and Tupac smile or Tupac talking about their 10 rules to the game. I share with you, too. Right. That there are here explicit moral and ethical lessons that are often couched in new personalities. So I'm thinking in terms of Tupac's conversation about black Jesus the patron saint of thugs, who provides a very different moral and ethical code. Or Biggie's Ten Crack Commandments. There you go. Which intersects <laughs> drug dealing with the holy writ. To say, like, this is what you're not going to do, and this is what you're definitely going to do, and this is higher. This standard is higher than anything else you're going to deal when it comes to selling crack. And it seems to me this is where it comes together, what you were talking about in terms of self and personhood, right? That these values come together in this sort of conversation. There is a, a commitment to awareness that allows us to understand our circumstances and a commitment to personhood, right? The survival of something of ourselves, despite the circumstances in which we find ourselves. I think that there's a... a a fundamental kind of declamatory 
function of black music and a joy about it that has to do with the fact of survival, that has to do with the fact that in whatever era we exist, we understand forces are arrayed against us. And this is not a foreign thought to, to, to any of us. And that I'm here to tell, <laughs> I'm here to tell means I survived. I, I got through it, you know? And this has great power, I think, for audiences and for listeners. <laughs> I think there's all I would agree with you. And I think there's also within hip hop culture, deep value given to pleasure. Yes. Right. And there are various ways in which you can read that some more constructive than others. So yes. I think in terms of a Nicki Minaj or salt and pepper who kind of celebrate personhood and pleasure. It's a recasting of black sexuality over against the ways in which the status quo of the U.S. would perceive black pleasure. Yeah. A kind of ownership of ourselves in ways that free us to enjoy ourselves. Yes. Uh, pleasure is the fruit of you having, of, of, of success and of you having achieved your goal. Even if your goal is just to make a pie, at the end of it, you cut a slice you hold it up to the camera, you take a bite, you say, mmm. You have to know, like, what was all that work for? You know? And so pleasure is part of, it's the fruit of, if you will, actually surviving, of actually getting through it. That is why so many artists, whether it be in their songs or their videos, they show the accumulation of property and of wealth. This is a way of demarcating my having been able to get over and not get over in the, in the sense of get over like to trick somebody to get over, but my, my own wilds, my own intelligence, my brilliance has enabled me. And the pleasure is now the reward for that. And folks are often critical of that, but I think we cannot lose sight of the fact that they are mirroring what is discussed in terms of the American dream, right? That there's something about hip-hop's understanding of pleasure and personhood that is deeply connected to a U.S. understanding of success. I've always resented the term gangster rap. I always called it quote-unquote-unquote-unquote, gangster rap quote-unquote-unquote-unquote, because my position <laughs> was that everything that rappers talk about in so-called gangster rap, one hears talked about in European classical opera the pursuit of women and the acquisition of them, power over one's enemies, outrage against uh, over uh, uh, undeserved misfortune, the same exact themes. Like, gangster rap is very operatic when you think about it, but it's the fact that it's black young guys and the fact that they're so upfront and blatant about it. And, and you know, there's, there's that thing that they say, like, when you see like a group of black kids running through the streets laughing, people are going to look and wonder, what did they do wrong? Mm. They, they, we, we can't experience joy on its own terms. There's got to be something, there's got to be something nefarious afoot. And so I absolutely, yeah, I absolutely think that it's, it's like taking America, the American dream at, its fa at face value. But the truth is that the American dream was not intended for us. We were intended to present it and make it possible for others. That's why we were brought here. Why do you think so many folks have a difficult time appreciating this dimension of hip hop? When I met Chuck D in college and he introduced me to Hank and uh, Flavor and Eric Vietnam Sadler and Mr. Bill and all those guys, and we were hanging out. When I talk to people about those days, what I say is these were the first people I ever met who took hip hop completely seriously. At that time in its history, the conventional wisdom was that hip hop was a fad and it was going to go away. This was what smart people said. It was, it, and it was a given. It wasn't even questioned as, as a, that's maybe not. No, it's just, it's, it's a fad. It's going to go away. 
we didn't believe any of that. It wasn't even something we discussed as to whether it might happen. We just assumed that this was real and permanent. And I think persons like you, maybe this is why for a long time I wanted to meet you and learn more about you, persons like you or like I get it. You're a thoughtful person who's done a lot of work on a lot of questions having to do with what do black people think about? Why do we think about? Why do we do these things? And when you look at hip hop, I get this sense that it's very clear to you that it's rational. And I think for a lot of people, it's irrational. And so they don't trust it. If people don't think there's rationality behind it, they don't trust it. And I think a lot of people see black people, especially black young people, as essentially irrational. They don't know why we're doing all that yelling, why we're making all that noise, why we're so angry. <laughs> and so anything, you know, I've long said, like, if you took, if you just sampled a newspaper over a course of a year and took all the adjectives that are used to describe black males and took all the adjectives that are used to describe hip hop and matched those lists, they would probably be about the same in terms of what they say, loud, noisy, maybe destructive, about crime, you know? Arsonist, whatever. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think it's I think it's for these reasons. I I, I, I speaking for myself, and I, I think I detect this in you as well. You know that we both, for whatever reason, were blessed with a, a perspective where we became more curious when we saw certain things, and trusted our our sense of what was right and pleasurable. I think you're absolutely right. You hit the nail on the head, and I think this attention to hip-hop has to or should involve both appreciation and critique, right? Yes. That we have to be mindful of what it gets right and what it gets wrong. Absolutely. So let, let's move in that direction. When it comes to life in the United States, what do you think hip-hop gets right and what do you think hip-hop gets wrong? I think what hip-hop, for the most part, gets right is the reality of race and a lot as well about how it functions. 50 years ago, Lerone Bennett Jr. wrote a book called The Challenge of Blackness. And in it, he said, the state of freedom is most accurately reflected in the lives of the men on the bottom. Hip hop is almost permanently, unrelentingly created by the men on the bottom. And for all the reasons we've just we've just named about veracity and the rugged truth, et cetera, those men are compelled to say what they see. So it's always very strange to me when I see people, usually white people, every now and then a non-white person, but almost, relented, almost relentlessly a white person, talk about race as a fiction or mislocate where it functions or who's doing it. And this is not something that the men on the bottom do. It's very clear to them what it is and that it's operative. And I found in my interactions, when I talk about these matters, these people are not disbelieving. The, the artists and the people who make hip-hop culture, they, they get that. They may not have all the same language or analysis, and sometimes they do. Or sometimes they're just saying it another way. But that race is real and active is not unclear to them. So I think that's what they get right. I, when it comes to what they get wrong, I would think, I would say it's one, how money works. I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding about what money is, how it works. I remember hearing one rapper just the other day saying how it dawned on him that people who are really rich don't display their wealth. They don't have a lot of jewelry on. They, they don't wear jewelry. That was the thing that he actually said, that they don't wear a lot of jewelry. That for him, if you're wealthy, you wear jewelry, and that's the way you show your wealth, or if you want people to think that. So I think that that this, the, the, the ostentatiousness of wealth and what money supposedly means, I think, is where we pro what we probably get most wrong. But I would say also, I don't think I don't think we understand what women are for at all. I think that in hip hop. One of the things that that kind of girds the culture is this kind of weird coaxiality between the saintliness of motherhood 
and the inevitability of whoredom. I think that these things are bound around each other, this relationship to the female, that the mother is a saint, but all of the women are whores. And I think that this is extremely problematic. So I would say maybe even above money that this is because when you get that wrong, you're going to get money and everything else wrong. Yeah, I I would agree with you. And it seems to me that is where hip hop culture connects in significant ways with the larger culture of African-Americans, that Mm -hmm. issues of gender and sexuality are problematic, that it's easier for hip hop culture and the larger black U.S. culture to get race right than it is for them to connect and understand the ways in which sexuality and gender have also been used to produce disregard. I agree with you, but I I also think that I also think it connects to the larger U.S. culture in that way as well. Of course, I, yeah. I, I, I don't think that. Um, that there's any part and place in the world where this is not an issue. And as a Christian myself, as a person who believes in the authenticity of the Bible, I'm always struck by that the fact that one of that one of the curses that Eve suffers as a result of her sin is that she says her desire, her desire shall be unto her husband. And what this means is that her relationship with her husband was always going to be a source of pleasure and conflict that she would want to have a good relationship with him, but it would always be a source of conflict. And I see that echoing through human relations today, that, that there is desire, especially on the part of women, I think for, for coherence and, and, and gentleness. Um, but that, that desire is often under is often under underhandedly like demolished. And, and so here's one of the concerns for me. If, if you think in terms of uh, this is getting off topic a little bit, but if yes. you think in terms of the black church, and then if you think in terms of hip hop culture, yes. both of these entities, right? Both of these cultural forces have operated based upon an assumption that what matters most is the well-being of black people. And so black churches have not accepted the silence of the Bible on issues of blackness and slavery, right? I've not heard of a black church that says, you know what? It was a mistake for us to seek freedom because the Bible doesn't say anything about black people being free. And hip hop culture has been critical of the sacred text of the American dream U.S. exceptionalism and the Constitution, but has embraced other elements of normative social reality in the U.S. And so why is it, why has it been so difficult for the black church and for hip hop culture to make use of that same expansive way of interpreting these sacred texts? Why haven't they been able to use that same expansive approach to deal with issues of sexuality and gender? Now, I have to admit here, I'm not quite sure I'm clear on what is what the what the contrast is or the comparison you're making between the black church and hip hop as a culture. Well, I, I'm saying that both of them have gotten raised to some extent, right? In part because they've read black life against so-called sacred story. Right. They have critiqued and challenged what is normative conversation concerning black people as black people. Yes. Both have done that. Yes. They've been creative in terms of how they've read U.S. narratives, how they read sacred texts in a way that was meant to preserve the personhood of black people. Yes. But they've not used that same expansive way of reading and thinking when it comes to issues of gender and sexuality. Yes. I would say that in both cases, you have fields which are male dominated and beset by this coaxial, the saintliness of motherhood and the inevitability of whoredom. I I don't think that they're different in that regard. I think that where, where men lead the black church, hip hop, politics, business, 
whatever you call these fields, these are all male-dominated areas where you're going to see women set up as help. And help means all kinds of help, uh, whether it means you type for me or you warm my bed. That this is something that that men are undone by, tempted by, and inevitably lose their positions to. Friend, one more question Absolutely. for Absolutely. Um, so we are two 50-plus guys chopping it up about hip-hop. And me more plus than you are. <laughs> well, you know, only by a few months, but we, we won't even get <laughs> yes, into sir. that. But um, so, so you know I have to ask this question. Yes. What is the future of hip-hop? The, the only thing that's certain is irrelevance and decoherence. There'll be all kinds of styles, uh, most of them nonlinear, and like you can't predict them. I was at a school, I was at Syracuse, and, 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 and someone asked me, one of the students asked me, had hip-hop changed since the early days at, at its beginning when I first got into it? And I said, which was such a great question, and I said, well, on one, in one sense, it hasn't, because it's still basically spoken, lyrical, rhyme couplets over instrumental beats. If you had died in 1973 and come back to life in 2023, you would still recognize it as rap music. So it hasn't changed enough where it's unrecognizable. Now, of course, there have been a lot of modifications in production, in rhyme styles, and patterns, and all those kinds of things, but it's still recognizable. But I think at some point, this is going to play out. This is going to be your grandparents' music as opposed to just your parents' music. It'll be predominantly your grandparents' music. And then it might just be apt for aficionados, and then people will stop updating it, and it will decohere. People talk about hip-hop being born in August of 1973, but as my earlier statements might indicate, I say, I, I don't hold to that. I say it cohered at a certain time, and it's going to decohere at another time, and then it'll just be like the universe, which itself will ultimately become irrelevant and decohere. Everything ultimately does. You know, I could talk to you for another hour, but unfortunately, we are out of time. Folks, I'm Anthony Penn, and I've had the good fortune of talking with my friend, Harry Allen. The Pin Drop Podcast with Anthony Penn is a production of Only Sky Media, exploring the whole human experience from the secular perspective. Visit us online at onlysky.media. Thanks for listening. See you next time for Pin Drop.